Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Councillor Brad Clark will be pitching a motion next week to change a nuisance bylaw to allow a crackdown on the odors that come from home pot growers. Hamilton will be flying the Pride and Transgender flag outside City Hall, but there won't be a ceremony this year. And also, President Donald Trump says that he'll be putting a 5% tariff on Mexican imports in order to deter asylum seekers. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, pot, about cannabis, more specifically about the odor that it creates. And uh, Hamilton City Council is now going to be pitching a motion next week to try to change the nuisance bylaw to allow for a crackdown on some of the odors from uh, personal pot growing. That councillor, of course, is Brad Clark. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain why. Uh, Brad, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, sir. You know, i got to tell you right off the bat, I'm surprised it took this long for somebody to complain. I mean, because I, I, I knew this was going to happen, but uh, obviously you, you're, you're getting a lot of calls about this. Yeah, the, the calls that we're getting in my office are, are mostly related to a rather large grow-up on Green Mountain Road, very close to Centennial Parkway. And, and it's one of those operations where uh, it's really not being regulated by Health Canada because what they did, the operators combined personal use licenses together to enable them to, in essence, launch a large grow-up um, for allegedly personal use. And the odor coming off there is, is just, uh, it's would knock a hound off a gut wagon. It's terrible, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> okay, I love the metaphors. Uh, here's here, The concern, though, of course, is, is, and I guess, you know, I'm not a user, but I mean, I, I know people that are, and, and I've always wondered about the rather pungent aroma. Of course, we you know, immediately think of the, you know, the aroma, of course, when somebody is smoking uh, cannabis. But this is just the growing of itself. The, the plant itself gives off an odor. Yeah, it, I mean, it, they've called it skunkweed for a reason because the, the aroma that comes off of the budding plant, not the early growth plant, but the budding plant, the harvestable plant, um, smells remarkably like a skunk. And so you can well imagine if you have more than 2,200 plants growing in a, a, a greenhouse, without the the proper ventilation system that recirculates the air and puts it through carbon filters that it is going to to emanate widely and it has i mean empire homes which is just west of the property which is a large brand new subdivision uh the residents there are telling me that it's not that they can just smell it they can taste it in their throat when they're outside and and it's just horrendous uh, and I've experienced it myself. And, and so from my perspective, enough is enough. We have authority under the Municipal Act to act, and, and we're going to do that. What, what, talk to me about the technology about this, because I, I've talked to other people that are running other cannabis operations, legitimate ones, as you say, that are federally licensed, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't seem to have this problem. Yeah, the, so there's two types of producers. One is a commercial, one is medical. They have licenses from Health, um, uh, Health Canada. Uh, when you're operating as a licensed producer, there are stringent codes and regulations in place that make you control the odor. So the odor remains inside a tightly sealed building that is circulated through carbon filters, um, and you can be standing directly outside that building and not smell anything. Uh, the situation that we have here is that these grow ops are falling outside of Health Canada regulations. They're not a licensed commercial producer, and so um, Health Canada won't do anything about it. Uh, the provincial government won't do anything about it. 
and we're stuck in a situation of trying to sort out, well, then what can the municipality do? And when I looked at the Municipal Act, I found the section that very clearly indicates that municipalities can prohibit or regulate noise, vibration, odor, dust, and outdoor illumination. Uh, those are some of the issues that we're, we're experiencing, and so we just need to change the bylaw accordingly. So, and again, this, this again which seems to underscore the, what we've talked about an awful lot in this program, that, that both the federal and provincial governments rushed into this thing. I don't think they, they considered all of the ramifications of something like this. This is really something that they should have covered off. I, I would think so, and I would have thought that once it became um, commonplace, and it's not just happening in Hamilton, I'm hearing from municipal politicians across the province where this is happening, uh, that they would have modified their federal regulations to indicate that if you're, you know, um, combining a number of personal use licenses to create a grow-up, then you're going to be regulated in the same manner as a licensed producer. Uh, but they haven't done that, and they've indicated they have no intention of doing that, which leaves the municipality, unfortunately, holding the ball uh, and needing to create, A, the bylaw to do it, and B, to enforce it. You would have thought when they were having all these hearings and all this investigative work that was going on in Ottawa before they moved ahead with the uh, the actual legalization of this that somebody might have brought this up. Maybe maybe nobody on Parliament Hill uses the stuff. I don't know. But the reality is that somebody should have said, by the way, you know there's an odor here. Well, you know, <laughs> the old expression, haste makes waste, what what I think has happened is there was a political decision to move forward with the legalization, and they wanted to do it quickly and before the next election. So as a result, um, they expedited the passage of the legislation, and the consultations were not as thorough as they could have been. And, and we now find ourselves in these peculiar situations where the feds in the province are saying, no, that's we're not dealing with that. You guys have to deal with that. Now, just on a point of clarification, I know that you've explored this, and I know you talked to staff about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got the impression, Brad, that they pretty much told you, well, there's really nothing in there. I know you've quoted from the Municipal Act, but the Mr. Leanders, Ken Leanders, of course, who's in charge of bylaw enforcement for the city, uh, seems to think that, uh, that you have to rewrite the law, or just can you add a, a codicil to the existing law? So it's an amendment um, to the existing nuisance bylaw. And I worked closely with Ken on this, and and I have to admit that early in my elect after the election, when I was meeting with with different staff, um, I was getting the response: "There's nothing we can do," and I found that incredibly frustrating. And so I know the sphere of authorities of the different levels of government, and where one level of government has not acted on their authority, um, and by that I mean created legislation to deal with the matter, another uh, sphere of authority can act if it's within their authority. And it's very clearly stated that a nuisance is something that a municipality can deal with. Um, so in, in these larger green ops, uh, grow ops, for example, um, another issue is the lighting. They're putting uh, very powerful lights on um, in the evening hours to force the growing of the plants bill. Um, but that emanates out into the broader community, and, and that's another issue that we can actually regulate. And so uh, after having many conversations with uh, legal uh, staff as well as Mr. Leanderts, uh, we've come to the realization that we actually can amend our nuisance bylaw. It doesn't have to be a brand-new bylaw, um, and, and we can, in fact, regulate and enforce um, this, this, this new uh, process. 
You know, if I'm getting a sense of deja vu about how you're explaining this and describing what you've seen and, and smelled, I guess, here, Brad, uh, it's, I'm getting this deja vu because this sounds very similar to the conversation I had with Councillor Ferguson a couple of weeks ago about the proposal out in Ancaster on Jerseyville Road and the, all the concerns that he raised. And he was told, from what Lloyd told me, uh, we can handle all that, we can cover it off. But this, that's really a different kind of operation from what I'm told. It is, and a licensed producer, I mean, I visited licensed producers of commercial and, and medical cannabis um, and if they are complying with, with the rules of Health Canada, there is no odor outside of the building. It is contained within the building with the technology that they have. And, and I stood right beside a number of these licensed producers, um, their actual grow ops, and, and even their processing center, and there is no odor. I've toured inside, and until you get directly into the grow op room where the plants are, are being harvested, there really is no smell, and even in that room, it's very minor because it's being filtered through a carbon filter. Uh, so if they do it right, there's not an issue. These folks are not following that process because they're not licensed producers. Have you talked to any of the, uh, the operators about, uh, about what could be done here? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, our staff have extensively over the last few years, um, and, and there, <laughs> there didn't seem to be any cooperation coming from these facilities. And, and I think they know that they're operating in a very gray area, and so uh, they figured that they were safe continuing to do that operation. So my hope is that by passing this bylaw, we will encourage these folks who are falling in the gray area to actually adopt the same practices as a licensed producer. Well, I know I'm, the pushback you're going to get on this, I can tell you right now, and I'm sure you're already anticipating this, is they're going to say, in other words, you're forcing us to spend all kinds of money now to bring in the same technology that the other folks are using. Um, I would argue that they should have already done that. Uh, if, they, if they're wanting to, to grow the product in Canada, uh, which is highly regulated, then they should be following the rules. But on, are you going to get pushback from some of these operators in, in the meantime saying, look, this, is, this was not in play when we set this thing up. This is, you know, you, you can't add on. I mean, that's going to be their argument. I'm sure there's going to be some, some pushback on this, and who knows how far they want to take it. Well, they can argue that, uh, but the, the, the laws are pretty clear that the municipality has the authority to deal with these issues. So if the owner-operator is not going to deal with this issue and their operation is impeding the enjoyment of private property, the neighbors around them, then the municipality has the authority. And I would argue uh, we have the obligation to act on behalf of the residents. So you're worth in your rights. That's that's not going to be a concern as far as you're concerned. I'm sure you've you've consulted with staff about the legality of this. So that's that's going to be happening. Uh, and as to I guess the operators, and I'm sure we're going to hear from some of them. I guess in the days and weeks ahead after you present this thing to to your council colleagues next week, uh, they they're simply going to have to comply. And if it means they're going to have to spend money to do that, then then so be it. That's that's basically the rationale here. That is correct. So. How soon can just something like this happen? I mean, uh, because you, already you've got some offenders. So, I mean, as soon as you get this thing enacted, as soon as you get it passed and ratified by council, I, I would imagine you're going to be sending staff up there to knock on their door. Uh, that would be my intention. Um, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue that needs uh, remedies now. So the, the uh, mo- motion that I'm presenting on Tuesday, June 4th at planning, and any residents that want to come out and speak in favor, or even operators who want to oppose it, they have that opportunity if they file their notices today with the city clerk, they can, can appear before for the committee. 
the, if the committee passes it and council ratifies it, then it will go to staff to actually draw up the bylaw. And I know they've already been working on, on language for the bylaw, and I would expect that the bylaw would come back uh, in relatively short order. Um, and my hope is that we can get something up and operational before the summer so that, that we can actually start to enforce it so that residents can start to enjoy the backyard barbecues again. All right, let me ask you something, though, Brad. Once this is passed, let's go down that road for just a second. How, how, how micromanaging is this going to be? I mean, as, if somebody says, look, my neighbor right next door here has got five or six plants there, and I can't stand the smell when I'm sitting out on my back deck, you've got to tell this guy to tear it out. Uh, do you go that far, or is this really just for the big operators? Uh, the intention of the here is to, to deal with the larger operators, um, but in theory it could be used if someone was growing cannabis in their backyard and the odors were quite significant and residents around them were complaining about it, uh, then bylaw enforcement would, would have to go out and talk to the residents and, and, and try to come up with some compliance agreement with it. Um, we're in unchartered territory here. We're not expecting that if, it can, if someone's growing four cannabis plants, that is going to be a significant issue in a neighborhood. What we're talking about here, and the, the, the impetus for this uh, bylaw change, this operator is growing over 2,200 plants. That's a significant amount of, of material, and the odor is, is very powerful. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you're going to start getting neighborhood complaints on this. And I, under, I understand. I know that the law right now says that there are limits on number of plants. Uh, but in the backyard, I mean, you know, people, you're not supposed to speed either, and lots of people do. Uh, so, so you may well actually have a lot more action going on in bylaw. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who shows up at the uh, the planning meeting and just what may, they may have to say about this. Uh, again, something that I think we anticipated was going to happen, uh, and it's going on, well, literally in, in some people's backyards right now. So uh, this is going to be resolved. Any idea about how other municipalities are handling a similar situation? Uh, interestingly enough, we seem to be leading the way again. Uh, I've had a number of phone calls from different municipalities and, and, and media across Ontario uh, inquiring about this bylaw because I think most people are starting to see the impacts of these larger unlicensed grow-ops, uh, and it, it seems to be quite common in, in the broader community that if you put a bunch of personal licenses together, you can actually get more product. But those personal licenses were for personal use, and, and I don't think, you know, four or five, six people can smoke 2,200 plants. Well, you would think not. No. <laughs> Brad, we'll follow this uh, as it goes through the process over the next couple of days. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. It's, uh, Brad, of course, uh, City Councilor Brad Clark. Uh, got similar situations. Talk to your City Councilor about this, and there will be a bylaw with some teeth in it. And as uh, Councillor Clark says, uh, it looks like, once again, uh, Hamilton is uh, setting the trend for this, and other municipalities will probably copy what's going on here in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. June is a uh, Gay Pride Month, and uh, there has been a tradition over the last couple of years, anyway, number of years, I guess, at Hamilton City Hall for a little ceremony and a flag raising. Uh, it's done in the forecourt there at City Hall. It's not going to be happening this year uh, because the advisory committee has some legitimate concerns. Uh, the LGBTQ advisory committee we're, of course, talking about. Uh, Cameron Crush is the chair of that committee. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on what's going on. Cameron, good to have you on the program again. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Let's talk maybe, uh, give us some background here as to as to what's going on and what your concerns were, because I know you've discussed this with your other committee members. Yeah, we had a meeting again uh, on May 28th. The mayor and the city manager reached out to say, 
we, they wanted to hear about our motion from May 15th. So we reached out on May 28th, had that meeting to go over the concerns again. And this time, even more community members came out to air their concerns. And there was a lot of focus on what's happening with the hiring and investigation of Mark Lemire at the city, discussion of the implementation of the 2017 trans protocol, and then quite a bit of discussion about election processes and how we ended up with a cap on our committee of nine members. Well, so let's let's take these one at a time here because there's, I think, some very legitimate issues here. Uh, and, and first of all, there's, as you mentioned, there were, there were some promises made and some commitments made by the city. Do you feel as if, as if they're, I guess to use an old expression, they're talking the talk but not walking the walk? That's what I sensed from the committee meeting we were at, right, that people were saying, yes, we'll do these things, but we weren't hearing concrete results. And when the committee eventually passed this motion on May 15th, what we did notice was clear communication from the city, right? They started saying, okay, we're going to have an investigation. That investigation is going to be from two different parties. Uh, the results of that investigation are going to come to the city manager directly. So I think that um, the city is starting to listen now. Um, that's a signal I'm receiving anyways. Uh, the city manager came to that meeting on May 28th and was uh, very clear and emphatic about making sure that this investigation regarding a known white supremacist working in a high sensitive position is going to be resolved in weeks instead of months. Cameron, when did you first uh, make your concerns known to city staff? And I, I don't know if uh, Ms. Smith was actually on, on staff at that time. I know this was a few weeks ago. Yes, I think that, um, which I think she's only been on staff for, I think, three weeks now, not yeah. even maybe. And as it may be interesting for your listeners to know, this committee uh, changes over every four years, and our very first meeting was actually May 15th. So that was when we made this known. That was when we passed this motion. And uh, the previous committee hadn't been meeting the previous three months because, of course, there's a new selection process that goes on. And typically and traditionally, committees don't meet as often during the selection process for the new committee. Absolutely. So so you've expressed some concern and your committee has expressed some concern. What kind of response did you get from the city at that time? When we immediately uh, put the motion forward, there wasn't a lot of a response immediately. Um, I think that eventually... Um, to be fair to the city manager who had just come into uh, her role, needed some time to get some background and history, and so reached out a bit to clarify what some of the things were and, and you know, what happened to bring the community to that point, and then they set that meeting up on May 28th. So just a couple of days ago, obviously, and so we've had this now. I understand, obviously, this is an administrative thing. This is about an employee, and, and if we have to look at job responsibilities and, and that sort of thing, and... and uh, it is the city manager's job as opposed to a political situation, but there's clearly political ramifications to this. Uh, have you talked to the mayor about it? Uh, the mayor hasn't reached out, to be honest. Um, I know that Chris Cutler was at the meeting on May 28th. He was able to make it to part of it. And Chris Cutler from the mayor's office, just for those who don't know. Go ahead. Indeed. and uh, No, but I haven't heard from the mayor at all. Interesting. Uh, so this this concern that's being raised, and as you mentioned, there are some other things too. This is not simply about Mark Lemire. There are some other things that uh, the committee is concerned about. Uh, have you had an opportunity to kind of flesh these things out and, and, and actually you know make some, some of these concerns known to the staff? I know this is relatively new because the committee has just actually been reformed and you haven't had a whole lot of time uh, to put stuff together right now, but uh, clearly you, you've got some some concerns that you need to articulate uh, not just to the to the city administration, but I would think to the city council as well. Yeah, we started to do that. Excuse me. Um, they've when they came out, the city manager came out with staff and Councillor Wilson to the May twenty eighth meeting. There was a there was you know a couple of hours for them to hear about what the community thought. 
But this is just a start, right? So we are having a meeting on June 18th to keep the conversation going. But I, I want to backtrack slightly a bit just to say that I think that one thing that was really emphasized about the employment matter, um, you know, with Mark Lemire, was that there's a cover-up going on here from the perspective of people in the community, and that was discussed pretty clearly at the committee level, right? So that it wasn't just a matter of having hired this person in the first place, it's how the person remained in that position for so long, and even when it was brought forward formally six months ago, how the, how the public wasn't made aware. So I think that's that's been communicated very clearly to the city manager, but there's a lot more conversation that has to go on here to sort of unpack some of these things more deeply and more meaningfully. Oh, absolutely. And we've raised those issues on the program, of course, with a number of different councillors. Uh, and we're asking essentially the same questions that you raised at the meeting, Cameron. Uh, you know, he's been employed there for quite some time. Uh, and we want to know, you know, were they aware, first of all, of his background when he was hired? Uh, and, and if so, did they think it was no big deal at the time? Or did they just say, well, just don't mention it? Because it seems a little shady to, to, to understand exactly what was going on here. The fact that, uh, uh, you know, that, that he didn't have a voicemail. He didn't identify his name on the voicemail. All, most other city employees do that sort of thing. So, I, I, it, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. And, and I understand that the city manager is, is going to, you know, bring a report back and say, here's what we've discovered. He's got, she's got two different agencies that are looking into this right now. But it's it's rather unnerving, isn't it, to know that this had been going on for quite some time? And it seems at this point, and we just we have to be careful how we phrase this. It seems as if somebody did know about this and and didn't really think it was much of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I've looked at some of the reports and emails and different kinds of receipts that have been circula- circulating around social media, and it does seem that way. It seems that it was clear to people that this information was available. It's not as if um, this person you know, didn't have any notoriety. So it is a real puzzling thing to understand how people couldn't have known. But I guess we're going to have to wait to the outcome of the investigation. I would say that the other thing the committee is really concerned about is how the committee itself was selected. So for uh, years, I would say, there was not a cap put on this committee, right? So you could have 15, 20 people in the committee if you wanted to. And this year, kind of behind the scenes move, they just capped the committee at nine. So if you can imagine lots of people in our community who wanted to participate, especially racialized folks, um, folks with disabilities, also youth were left out of the selection process and whose applications were rejected because a cap was implemented. So well, did they did very damaging. But Cameron, did they give you any explanation, any, any, any justification for doing what they've done? Well, I'll say that after the fact, now that the selection process has been concluded, there has been some information from city staff saying, hey, we, we thought that larger committees, you know, had trouble uh, getting all the people to show up to them. Had they actually reached out to the committee to find out why there might have been some attendance issues, they probably would have got a very different answer. I mean, I can't speak to that. I wasn't on the committee previously, but there was no consultation of any kind. It was just, here's an arbitrary cap that we're going to come up with a, a number of nine, and we're going to just select these people. When I looked around the table, when I first got to the committee meeting, I thought, wow, we're really missing some important leaders and some important voices. And people have spoken out to say, hey, we applied to that committee and didn't even get an interview. Cameron, did they put a cap on other committees, uh, some of the other citizen committees? Is, is this going right across the board, or is it just yours that they've singled out? I have heard from chairs and vice chairs and members of other advisory committees, and they have said that, yes, there's also been a cap put on some of them. But none of this information has been made public. So it kind of happened behind the scenes during the process. I'm not sure how widespread it is, to be honest with you. Is nine the consistent number here, or does it change from committee to committee? Or have you had a chance to talk to, to have them? Been, it seems to have been nine 
with uh, these type of advisory committees that I've heard from a couple, so I've only heard from two or three. It seems to be nine is the number. We are putting a citizen's report together right now that's asking this committee to, uh, sorry, asking council to allow us to have 15 members so we can get some more representation on from youth, people of color, that kind of thing. Yeah, because until you brought this up, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I knew nothing about this, and I'm sure an awful lot of the people uh, that had applied for some of these com- committee positions on, on some of these advisory boards may not have been aware that there was going to be a cap in place. And and I, I guess one of the first questions I'd ask, and we intend to ask now that, now that we're aware of what's going on here, is why 9? Why not 10? Why not 12? What, what makes 9 such a, a magical figure and such a workable number? I simply have no idea. <laughs> so no, I know I know you why, wouldn't yeah. because it wasn't your policy. <laughs> but you got to wonder how they did. They just pull it out of the air and just say, "Well, twelve is too big, so let's make it nine. I'd, I'd like to know what the rationalization was here. Yeah, so would I. Well, that's another question you have to ask. So, with all of this that you've just described. Uh, you've just decided that, look at uh, the motion that you passed was, look at let's forget about the ceremony, uh, as has been the case for the last little while. Uh, and, and I find that regrettable, and I understand why you're doing it. But, I mean, I, I can remember uh, one of the shows I did way back when was uh, when the city council at that time and the mayor at that time uh, wouldn't even allow the gay pride flag to be flown at City Hall. And that caused, as you can recall, a big mess here. There was a human mm-hmm. rights hearing about this, uh, uh, which, by the way, ruled in favor of, uh, of the committee, and, and they actually had to do that eventually. Uh, and it's become a tradition, though. And I'd like to think that we're better at this now and that we're, we're over that hump uh, and some of the, the, the myths and, and some of the problems that were going on back then. But uh, it sounds to me as if you've still got some concerns here. Yes, and I think it's really important to unpack that a bit. You know, it came about, as you said, this, this committee started when uh, amalgamation happened. And at that time, uh, Mayor Bob Wade and perhaps interestingly, uh, Maureen Wilson uh, decided that, you know what, we need to rebuild this relationship with the community after it's been damaged, and we're going to start this committee. And then the committee became responsible for the ceremony. I think it's important to say two things here. One, that if you give permission to the city or give the city or sort of you know, authorize the city to put up this flag and participate in that, that's one thing, and you're, you're sending a message when you do that. You have to also be able to take that away if things aren't going in the right way. And so I think that this isn't just a symbol. It's a promise from the city. It's a promise that, that things are safe, that marginalized communities are respected, and that uh, they're not endangered by the actions of the city. Uh, I don't think that's happening right now. The things we put forward in our motion really underline that, unfortunately, we've got a lot more work to do, and that com- line of communication is, isn't open, right? So what is an advisory committee for? Aren't we there to provide advice, or are we there to rubber stamp? And so I think we have to start unpacking this, not just here on the LGBTQ advisory committee in this situation, but looking across all advisory committees and asking ourselves, what are, what are the functions of these committees? What are they here for? And how can we honor and respect their voices? Well, and exactly, by definition, I mean, that's what that advisory committee should be doing, is liaising with city staff and with city councilors, for that matter, and, 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 and giving some input into this. And I happened to be on city council back in 2000, when, after amalgamation, of course, and, and I can remember when, when Mayor Wade decided to reconstitute this committee, and you may remember there was not just a ceremony at City Hall, there was a, a parade that used to go down James Street for a couple of years there, too. And, and Mayor Wade, by the way, got a lot of pushback from a lot of people in this community about doing that, uh, thinking, really, do you need to do this? And, and there was some great consternation, even within some city councilors, but with some area groups in the committee as well. Uh, and I can still remember Mayor Wade's response. He says, I am the mayor of all the people, and, and we're going to do this. 
Uh, and to his credit, he did. And he sta- he actually was in the parade, if you recall, back in those days, too, in the first couple of years. So it, we've moved on from that, but it sounds as if we've, we've fallen back a little bit in the last little while. I don't know if that's by omission or if, it's, if there's something else going on. I think that the thing that maybe some are missing here is that, you know, the strides that were made have certainly improved things with the community in general. And I'm not saying that that's not the case. I think, though, that some of us who gain privilege in the community as a result of that, myself included, frankly, um, aren't necessarily listening to the voices who are still, still struggling, right? So there are lots of folks who came forward, youth who made it very clear that, that their voices aren't being heard, people of color who made it very clear their voices aren't being heard, and two-spirit people who aren't part of the committee. So I think that that's the issue here, right, is that there's a whole group of people and voices that aren't being included and heard here, and it's our responsibility as a community to make sure that all the voices are being listened to, right? And not just in the wider community, but in the two-spirit LGBTQIA plus community, right? We have to make sure that we're giving a space to those voices. And at the meetings we've had, those are some of the people who've come out. We've had youth there saying, no, like, you know, the trans protocol hasn't been implemented. And no, we don't feel that this is, uh, this is going in the right direction. And so I think it's our job as people who hold that privilege, to listen to those who don't have it. What would be the first step then? What are you looking for from from the city here, from the staff and from councillors, to try to rebuild that bridge? I think the first step is addressing the selection process and addressing the composition of our committee. We've rightfully taken some criticism from people saying, you know, you don't represent everybody in the the two-spirit LGBTQIA plus community. We agree, we don't. And we want to have more representation on our committee. But we can't do that without council's approval, right? We can set up working groups to get people involved, which we already are doing, but we can't get people's formal participation on the committee without their approval. So I think that's one of the first steps. Um, I think that uh, looking at the list of things we've said and addressing those issues with us seriously uh, would be good. I know Councillor Wilson is committed to coming out to our meetings, and I think that would be a big and welcome change, having a steady council participation at those meetings. It means a lot to people to see that the council takes us seriously and that as a representative, they're listening to our concerns. Well, and that's one of the things that I think needs to be part of the discussion here is, is council representation on some of those advisory committees. Uh, so there is a direct link and a, and, a, and, and a communication between city staff and city councillors and, of course, the, the advisory members of the committee. Uh, in, in a, it, with that not being there, of course, you've got that void. You've got that communication problem. And that seems to be the, at the root of what, uh, what you're concerned with. It is. Uh, communication is the big issue, I think, here underlying all this and respect i know that other people who chaired this committee in the past have reached out to me through this and said you know we had uh folks who were very dedicated coming to this committee when it first started up um during the term of uh, mayor wade they had i think marvin kaplan was the person who was on the committee and attended regularly and then after that it was bob Bertina and attended regularly and there seems to have been at some point between then and now uh sort of a lack of council representation showing up to these committee meetings. And I understand, though, I want to be clear, there are hundreds of committees out there that people have to be part of. So maybe it's about looking at this whole process, the whole selection process and the committee process and saying, what's reasonable here? What can people do? What should they be doing? And how can we allocate everyone's time? And I know that you know this, but that process of selection, of appointing people as standing chairs, appointing people to advisory committees happens in a very opaque way. Um, very few people in the public understand what's going on and how it's done. And I would say incoming brand new counselors are kind of just thrown to the mix and 
and have to kind of go with it. So I think that we need to look at that process again and say, what makes sense here? How can we do this? And how can we ensure that this doesn't happen again? Well, and we've talked about that on the program, and I, you're right. I mean, I experienced it when I was on council. I saw it firsthand. And, and you're, when you're a rookie and a newbie on city council, invariably what you're told is, look, this is just the way we do it. It's the way we've always done it, which doesn't necessarily mean it's the way it should be. Um, so maybe that's got to be part of the discussion, too, to say, look, let's let's start from a, a ground zero here and talk about exactly how these committees are struck, uh, what the mandate for the council or the committee rather should be, and how are they going to communicate with city staff and with city council? Uh, because I'm not that that seems pretty cloudy right now from what you're saying. Yeah, and I think the reason why it seems cloudy is because there's an authority issue here, I think, right? So council feels like the the LGBTQ advisory committee can't necessarily make the decision it's made, right? Uh, even though that committee has been responsible for the ceremony since its inception, as far as I know. So it made a decision to say, we don't want to do the ceremony anymore. And then council was like, well, wait a minute. I don't think you can make that decision. So the fact that that's even a thing that is unclear, uh, that it's not something that is easily understood and that there's a clear answer to it means that, sure, there's more explanation needed. We need some more guidelines. We need better regulations around this. And we need a fairer, open, more open and more transparent selection process so that it's it's obvious to everybody. Well, here's the deal. I, I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, as an advisory committee, I'm using my air quotes here, uh, if, if you as a committee express some concern about something that's going on, and you certainly have some concerns, we've just talked about them, uh, the next step there is for the people who you're talking to to say, let's sit down and talk about this. And I don't think you, you haven't had that call yet, have you? Not yet. So I will give credit to the city manager and Councillor Wilson, who acted as quickly as they could to yeah. come out and listen to the, the facts of the motion. But now we're at that point where we're going to have a conversation on June 18th in council chambers at 7 p.m. to talk more with our community about some of these concerns and get more feedback. But yeah, it's really going to be up to the other side here to come to us and say, okay, this is how we're prepared to engage with you. This is what we're prepared to do and how can we help, right? So I think there's, there's a next step we're waiting for here to address some of these issues more directly. But again, I will give credit to the city manager and to Councillor Wilson for stepping up as quickly as they could to get involved. Absolutely. Well, Cameron, we're going to stay in touch with you as this unfolds over the next little while. I'm sure there's going to be follow-up. Thanks for this today, though. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Cameron Kretsch, of course, who was the chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee. Uh, certainly some work to be done there by city staff, city council, and, of course, the uh, advisory committee. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, right now, while well, uh, Mike Pence, the U.S. vice president, was in Ottawa yesterday pledging solidarity when it comes to uh, trade, especially with the new NAFTA deal, uh, his boss was uh, whacking Mexico with another tariff, or at least threatening to, and he says he's going to do it in the next couple of weeks which actually is getting some people now to really wonder whether or not this deal is actually going to happen because uh, Mexico seems to be backtracking a little bit. Let's uh, bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Ian. How are you today? Doing just fine, thank you. Uh, it's it's one thing to have the U.S. VP up here talking about this and saying, look, we really want to get this done. Can you help us? Uh, and he gets back on the plane and finds out his boss is whacking Mexico with tariffs. This is, this is the, the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing. Yeah, well, I wonder how many people he did speak to. He might have just this might just have been um, um, thought up by by Trump himself yeah. without um, uh, speaking to any of his uh, officials. Uh, I know uh, from what I've read, and it's been widely reported uh, that Trump has been very unhappy for essentially since he became president 
over the entire issue of illegal immigration. In fact, he got rid of his Homeland Security uh, person, uh, minister, uh, what we would call cabinet minister, cabinet secretary, uh, because he didn't think she was uh, cracking down hard enough, that she wasn't aggressive enough. Um, I'm just trying to present the numbers here. I'm not at all obviously taking sides in this. The numbers are up. The numbers of illegal migrants are uh, coming into the states is up, and they're coming in from the southern border, uh, from countries that are going through Mexico, from Guatemala and countries south of Mexico. So, in other words, they're passing through Mexico to the Mexico American Mexican American border, and then entering illegally into the into the states. And so Trump has been increasingly frustrated, partly because the Democratic Congress uh, would not pass, uh, give him the money uh, to uh, put um, to build uh, to extend the wall and to put more security on the wall. And so he's been looking for different ways to try to get at the issue. And uh, so he's decided, rightly or wrongly, uh, that he wants to hit uh, Mexico where it hurts. He doesn't feel that they have done enough to stop illegals from entering Mexico and using Mexico as a transit to the United States. So, because the uh, Mexican uh, economy is so completely dependent on the U.S., they're very vulnerable um, because they uh, they export so much. It's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And, and of course, lots of jobs. So, what Trump is doing is saying, okay, I'm going to get you where it hurts. I'm going to get you in the pocketbook uh, because if I put tariffs on, it's going to really throw a wrench into your economy in a country that's very poor relative to the states and where there's a lot of unemployment. So, I mean, that's what he's, that's what he's up to. Whether it's the appropriate thing to do or whether it's fair is a different question. Well, let's talk about the the, the propriety, impropriety. I, I, I would think a lot of people are going to view this as, Ian. Uh, first of all, here he is again using tariffs as a weapon, uh, which has, really has nothing to do with trade. I mean, he's trying to punish Mexico for, for something altogether different. Uh, and, and this is not the first time he's done that. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, there's even people in his own party, uh, uh, Senator Grassley, who's a very senior Republican uh, from uh, the Midwest, uh, has publicly criticized Trump for, he said, uh, mixing up uh, immigration and border control with trade. Uh, he says they're not, he says this was never the intent. The emergency measures granted to the president um, under an emergency powers act, he said, were never intended to address illegal immigration. And tr- uh, Trump is using his authority to impose these tariffs not under NAFTA, but he's using the an act of Congress that was passed, uh, the emergency um, um, uh, emergency measures act, basically, and and so um, there is already a lot of pushback. By the way, starting with the business community, uh, the business community is uh, really really worried because this is going to profoundly disrupt uh, supply chains, and um, and that is what he is uh, what the business community is really really worried about, and uh, it's going to uh, you know because they they stuff goes back and forth across the border. Uh, with these global uh, supply chains, uh, it goes back and forth across the border uh, several times. And so when you do this, this is going to really throw a wrench into not just the Mexican economy, but into a lot of American companies that are, um, that are on the, uh, you know, located in the States and, and shipping back and forth. So th- there's a lot of pushback already, and it'll be seen, remain to be seen whether or not it'll be upheld. Um, uh, you know, Congress can, if I'm not mistaken, um, and I'm not a legal scholar on the on the authority of the Congress, but I believe that they could pass a um, um, a resolution or a uh, of some sort that would uh, 
prevent him from um, uh, doing uh, imposing these tariffs. So it, it, yet to be seen if this is going to happen. Yeah, but the other element to this is you've been telling us for years uh, to do with tariffs, and I think we've articulated before, there's only about five people in North America that seem to think tariffs are a good thing, but four of them work for the the Trump White House, uh, Navarro and Wilbur Ross and a couple of other guys, the Lighthizer, I guess, is in that category as well. Yeah. But but the reasoning is, of course, as you've told us, Ian, it's the American consumer that's going to pay the tariff. I mean, the cost just gets passed on to the goods they're going to want to buy. Precisely. I mean, that, that, that's why I've always been against tariffs and why I think most people that study trade are against tariffs, is that they fall on your consumers. I mean, the consumers of the country that is issuing the tariffs, imposing the tariffs. So, you know, it's sort of like I'm going to punch myself in the nose to, to, um, to get the, you know, to hit back at the other guy. Well, why are you punching yourself in the face then? Um, and uh, now, Trump believes that the yeah i mean he understands tariffs fall on 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 uh, his own consumers but i think he believes that the loss of business to the other side meaning to the countries and companies that are exporting from mexico or china or what have you are going to feel the pain as well and so he believes that it's worth it uh, i'm much more skeptical and uh, and and more importantly, for seventy, eighty, ninety years since the end, well, eighty years, I guess, since the end of the Second World War, we uh, all our Western countries and Western institutions, World Trade Organization, the UN, it's all been geared, and individual countries have been geared towards the reduction and elimination of tariffs because they're they're seen as harmful. They they're a drag on the economy. They slow down the economy. They create additional unemployment. And all of this is seen as not a good thing. So, you know, that's why there's a reason why, uh, you know, we've been working so hard for 80 years to get rid of tariffs. Along comes Trump and, and uh, throws the whole thing into, into chaos uh, uh, by this because he likes it because he, it's instantaneous. Uh, I was reading a very nice analysis in the New York Times. They were saying, well, he likes it, the tariffs because he can put them on very, very quickly whereas other types of response by the president can take months, if not years, to take effect because of all the red tape and the bureaucracy and so forth. Whereas Terracer, he has the executive authority in certain instances to put them on, and they take effect almost immediately. And so there's an immediate impact. And so he likes that, uh, you know, instantaneousness of it. You know, hey, I'm the big uh, guy. I'm going to, you know, do something here to make, uh, to make something happen. And you announce it, and kaboom. Seven days later, uh, the tariffs are imposed, and, and you, have, uh, you have an impact occurring. So I think that's why it's attractive to him. Uh, but as I said, it's, it's, not, it's not good for the economy. And the other thing, too, very quickly, is there's a lot of signals in the states right now and in Canada with the inverted yield curve, and I don't want to go into the weeds, but suffice to say it's a metric that is a warning, a signal of a looming recession. Not saying it guarantees a recession, but it's a clue, an indicator. And, and so you would think that with a recovery that's so long in the tooth, it's now the oldest recovery in American history, that you wouldn't want to be playing uh, with, with the, risking the, um, putting this uh, recovery, uh, bringing it to an end, when he's up for re-election. I mean, if he's in a recession by the time of next year, uh, you know, the record of presidents being re-elected in recessions is not good. Absolutely not. Uh, to that end, though, Ian, uh, th- this imposition of tariffs, which is supposed to happen June 12th, according to what uh, he's yeah. tweeting, of course, 
what's this do to the NAFTA deal? Uh, because obviously, if Mexico is going to get whacked with this thing, uh, the, now you know. I mean, Trudeau has already said, okay, he's got a majority government; he can push this thing through before they break yeah. for the summer. And I'm sure that's what they're going to do. Uh, not so easy down in the states, and uh, Mexico may just say, you know what, we're just going to hit the pause button ourselves here. Does, does, um, this, does this does this hurt the chances of getting this thing ratified? I don't think it'll hurt the, from the side of from the Mexican side paradoxically. And that's because, in fact, the new president has already spoken. He says, no, 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 we're not going to retaliate, and no, we're not going to uh, 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 put NAFTA on hold, because Mexico is so completely dependent on the U.S. economy. It would be very, very counterproductive of Mexico to um, to say, you know, we're not going to uh, pass this, um, because they are so dependent. There are so many jobs on the line. What's going to be much more interesting is in the U.S. Congress. I mean, the Democrats are looking for any reason not to pass it because they don't want to give a victory to Donald Trump. And this certainly looks like a good opportunity to throw a wrench into Donald Trump's uh, wagon. Uh, but then that's offset by the fact that this is about immigration. And immigration is a red-hot issue in the United States. It is nothing like it is in Canada. You know, we debate at the odd time, and, you know, people, you know, get a little bit excited, but it's, you know, there's a broad consensus in Canada over immigration. The Americans for the last, I'd say, 30 years, since roughly the 80s, um, maybe that's 40 years, uh, uh, have been really uh, 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 very upset, and there's very different points of view. Um, there's those that want the, the border to be enforced much more aggressively. Uh, they want very large walls built. It's not just Donald Trump. There's lots of people that agree with Donald Trump. And then there's others. I mean, you have people in the Democratic Party who are setting up sanctuary cities um, and, and organizations whose job is to essentially help the illegals avoid being caught by the uh, enforcement authorities that uh, crack down on illegal immigration. So, I mean, it's very, very, um, very, two very, very different points of view. What's that got to do with NAFTA? Well, if, if she, in the, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democrats in the Congress, holds up the NAFTA vote because of this latest threat uh, round of uh, threatened tariffs against Mexico, you can bet that Donald Trump is going to say, see, those Democrats, they support illegal immigration. They don't want to crack down on illegal immigration because he's, he's going to say, he's already said it, I'm doing this to put pressure on Mexico to stop the flow of illegal immigrants coming through their country to our border. So I think he's going to use it to hit the Democrats over the head if they hold back on, on voting on NAFTA. So right now I would say it's murky. It's very cloudy. I'm not sure whether or not this is, bizarre as it may seem, I'm not sure that this is going to hold back the passage of NAFTA, uh, because it would be playing into Donald Trump's hands, I think, if the Democrats were to do that. Except that there's bipartisan anger about this, too. I mean, you mentioned Senator Grassley a few minutes ago. He is, of course, a Republican, uh, very much against uh, tariffs, as are an awful lot of other uh, of, of the senators and yeah. congressmen on, on both political stripes right now, so he's he's got a, he's got some challenges there. I agree with you completely because uh, the the key here again, ironically, because we both for the last six months everyone thought, and I'm one of them, thought it was all about the Democrats. But the 
notwithstanding that Trump is the president, he's a Republican president, of course, there are a lot of pro-business. I mean, all of the Republican senators and congressmen are pro-business and pro-free trade. I've never seen or read or heard of a Republican congressman who is opposed to trade. There are people in the Democratic Party, but not the Republican. And, and the business community is already, just in a space of 24 hours, is mobilizing like crazy to push back against what Trump is threatening. And I'm talking the Chamber of Commerce and some very big business groups and some very large corporations, including the auto industry corporations, are already mobilizing. So it may not be, quote, Nancy Pelosi that uh, brings uh, Trump around to back off. It may be the business community writ large and the Republicans in Congress. Uh, which is going to be an interesting dynamic. You're right. I mean, Pelosi can just really simply say, I'm taking a back seat on this one and let these other people do all the dirty work for her. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and this is not, um, again, this is, this is a, because it's such a bread and butter issue for the, for the business community, I'm talking in the business committee with their global supply chains, you know, where you source bits and pieces of the, of the thing you're making, whether it's a computer or whether it's an iPhone or whether it's an automobile, you source bits and pieces in different parts of the world. And, and because of NAFTA, the, we have created essentially uh, 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 supply chains uh, between Canada, U.S., and Mexico. And the figure I saw that has been quoted quite frequently is that the bits and pieces in a car cross back and forth seven times before the car is finally built, or light truck. So cars and light trucks. Well, the moment you start putting something like that in, it completely disrupts the, the whole business model of this industry, which is a huge industry. We're talking automobile manufacturing, a light truck and truck manufacturing. And Toyota has already expressed concern this morning. So is Honda, because they have plants in Mexico, uh, GM and Ford and Chrysler. So he's, he's, um, he's, going, he's generating on this particular round a lot of anger, a lot of pushback, and some uh, new enemies. But I guess he thinks, I'm assuming he thinks, he, Trump, thinks that the issue of illegal immigration is such a hot-button issue that he, I think, is assuming that the benefits of what he's threatening exceed the costs, although he may be wrong. Yeah, well, (laughs) pushback and uh, new enemies, that's kind of like the new normal in the States these days, I guess. Ian, we're just about out of time. Thanks so much for lifting the fog on this and giving us some clarity. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.